Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. If you're following along tonight, we are starting the book of Romans. We're going to be using the New King James. It is an incredible, powerful book. In fact, it's one of the most significant books in all of Scripture and significant historical documents in all of the Bible. And I'm going to tell you why here in a second. But if you're following, grab your New King James. We are going through the book of Romans. The book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul to believers in Rome. It has been recognized by scholars as the single most influential document in Scripture because this book speaks to every key issue to the Christian faith. So the book of Romans, we're going to literally cover every key issue to the Christian faith faith in this one book, which is why it's considered one of the most or the most influential document in scripture. It presents the entire counsel of God in one book. Paul had never been to Rome when he wrote the letter to the to the church in, Ro- in Romans, the book of Romans, though he had clearly expressed his desire to travel there. We know this in Acts 19, Paul longed to go to Rome, but he wrote this book before he ever visited Rome. And the book of Romans goes something like this. Paul shows how human beings lack God's righteousness because of our sin, that's chapters one through three. We receive God's righteousness when God justifies us by faith. This is going to be a lot of doctrine. That's chapters four through five. We dem- God demonstrates righteousness to a rebel people, which is us in chapter six through eight. Confirm God confirms his righteousness when he saves the Jews. That's not chapters nine through 11. And we apply his righteousness in practical ways in our lives. And that will be chapters 12 through 16. So the first 11 chapters are Christian doctrine, which you need to know if you're a believer and you don't know this, it's not just head knowledge or doctrine. Like you might think about it. This is practical ways we can apply the word of God to our life. And I'm telling you, this is one of the most incredible books in the Bible. So this is important to know. Every believer should know these these doctrines. The last five chapters of Romans are practical instructions on how to apply the doctrine. Okay, so Paul challenges believers in Romans to not only know the doctrine, but to live the doctrine out. This is an issue. Many people know doctrine, but they don't live it out, which leads to hypocrisy. I don't want to just know about holiness. I want to live it out. I don't just want to know about God's power. I want to walk in the power of God. Where are you at chat tonight? I don't just want to know about sanctification. I want to live a sanctified life life before God. I don't just want to know all these doctrines and theology. I want to walk this out in the spirit. So to know it is one thing and to live it is another thing. The Bible doesn't say you just believe. It says, prove you believe by your actions. Don't just say the Bible says you have faith, but show your works because if you don't have the works, your faith is dead. And who can that save? So the goal is not just go over Christian doctrine, which is significant and important, but How do we apply the Christian doctrine to our lives? So Romans has a lot of doctrine in it, and we're going to cover that. But I want you to keep this at the forefront of your mind as, man, I want to live this thing out. Am I the only one that goes, I want to live the gospel out. I want to walk out the power of God. I want to live a holy, righteous life, and I don't want to be a hypocrite. We're going to talk about that tonight. This this temptation to become hypocrites and judge people that are sinning in ways that we're also sinning in. So Paul's going to indict these this church in Rome about this idea, which is one of the most interesting principles in the book of Romans to me, we'll talk about tonight, storing up the wrath of God. This idea that when we sin, I won't spoil it because we're going to go into detail later, but when we sin, we don't get immediately judged for our sin, but instead 
We store up the wrath of God like treasure. That's what the Bible says. We treasure up the wrath of God for the day of wrath to where God pours out his judgment. So you might be a believer and you're living in sin thinking I'm getting away with it, but I'm going to show you tonight that God is actually storing up his wrath and that one day it will be poured out. This is no joke, no game. This is serious matter. So let's jump into this because we do have a lot to go over. Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So Paul opens up this very important letter by describing his identity, and he goes, this is my identity. Do you want to know the identity of the apostle Paul? First and foremost, a slave of Jesus Christ, and the word bondservant translates to slave. This idea is I completely belong to my owner. I have no freedom to leave. My life is not my own. I am a slave of God. I don't do what I want to do, but I do what the master wants me to do. And this this idea is foreign in the American church. It's absolutely foreign. We get taught Sunday to Sunday how to do what we want and add God to that. We get taught that this entire thing called Christianity is about us and figuring out a way to find a little spot for God somewhere in our busy lives. How many of us actually live our lives as slaves of God. When people look at it, they say, that person's a slave to Jesus Christ. I want my life's goal to be pleasing the master, the one that rescued me from the power of darkness, that gave me a new spirit, a new nature, and transforms our lives by his spirit. Before I'm known by a title, I want to be known as a slave of Christ slave of God. This is the title that we should bear and we should carry. Yes, we're friends of God. Yes, some pastors, teachers, apostles, businessmen, and whatever other title you have. But the first and foremost, very first verse in Romans 1, this is important to open with, slave of God. That is who I am. That's what I want people to see. I want people to look at me and say, yeah, Isaiah's a great preacher. Yeah, Isaiah's a great at this or great at that. But Isaiah, man, he's a slave of God. Like he lives his entire life to please the master. He lives his entire life to walk this thing out for real. I really want to be a slave and a bondservant of Christ. I don't want to live my life just, oh, I'm just going to be, you know, a good Christian on Sunday morning. I want to be enslaved to the calling of Christ. After a slave, Paul says, called to be an apostle. So first, I'm a slave. Order is important. Second, I'm called as an apostle. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles who I am not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace towards me was not in vain. So Paul says, I'm an apostle, the least of these. I'm, I'm not even worthy to be called one, although I am because God has called me to be an apostle. And then Paul goes on to say, here's the secret to my ministry right here in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul gives us the secret of his ministry. How did Paul preach with such boldness? How did Paul stand against the powers of persecution? How did Paul do what he did? Are you guys ready? The grace of God. Paul says, it's by the grace of God, I am what I am. If you want to know how I do what I do, Paul says, it's by the grace of God and his grace towards me was not in vain. This entire thing, this entire book is about the grace of God towards mankind. You know how I preach good, how I stand. Paul says, it's by the grace of God. That's the secret to an effective Christian life is the unmerited favor of God on our lives. And not only that, but he says, and the grace was not in vain. So two things, it was grace, and then the grace wasn't in vain. So God extends grace, and if we don't respond to the grace of God, the call of God, the grace of God is in vain. And my, my word to you 
is don't waste the grace of God by not responding to his calling and purpose on your life. I wonder how many of us have wasted the grace of God because of our laziness and lack of response. We don't need it. We can't live our lives, this lazy Christian life. And God goes, man, I'm giving you my power, my grace, my love. And we keep squandering it and literally wasting it. So Paul says, I didn't waste it. It wasn't in vain, the grace towards me. Live a life worthy of the grace of God. Live a life worthy of Jesus pouring out a spirit on you. Now, the word apostle comes from the Greek word meaning one sent forth. So the word apostle is the sent forth one. And in, histor- in a historical sense, To be an apostle meant to be sent forth by Jesus to build the church. That's an historical sense. In a today's sense, it means a sent one, one that God sends, one that goes out with a message that plants churches, that establishes churches. That's the meaning of an apostle. Years before Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, God gave a man named Ananias an assignment, and God said, go see Paul, who was staying at the house of a man named Judas, and pray for him. And now Ananias knew all about Paul, that he hated Christians, and Ananias wasn't prepared to be Paul's next victim, but God kept commanding commanding Ananias to go do this. So Ananias reluctantly went to meet with Paul. And the Bible says, go for he is a chosen vessel. This is in Acts 9.15. He is a chosen vessel to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So this was Paul. He's going to suffer for the name of God. He was persecuting the church. Now, you guys know this because we just finished the book of Acts. If you didn't know, we preached every verse out of Acts. It's on our channel. But this is the Apostle Paul. He was called by God. Ananias responded to the call, met with Paul, prayed for him. And then Paul's eyes were open. And then lastly, what Paul opens the letter with is separated to the gospel of God. The idea of separation is one that I am no longer connected to the world. I'm no longer associated with my old ambitions, my old desires, my old habits, my old pleasures, my old ideas. This this separation where God takes us, separates us from the world unto himself. So now I am crucified with Christ, and I'm trying to make this very easy to understand. It is no longer I that live. Separation, write this down, is necessary. How often this happens when God calls you. He calls you, then he separates you to himself. I remember when I got saved, the Holy Spirit filled me, and God separated me. God took me out of that friend group. God took me out of my old dreams, my old motives, my old ambitions, my old desires, my movies, my games, my music, everything I was accustomed to in the world, God separated me from it. So it doesn't always feel good, but just know that God is a God that separates. Separation is necessary. It doesn't always feel good to lose stuff, but it's necessary. And once you realize how good God is, he's a thousand times better than anything that I can hang on to. When you're separated, you don't live like everybody else. A separated Christian is effective for the work of the ministry. This issue is not about whether something's sin or not. It becomes about whether this is holy or not. So there are things in my life I don't do, and they're not sin to do, but I'm separated. People say, well, why is it a big deal to watch that? You could watch that, that's fine, but I don't because I'm separated. What's the big deal in talking that way? Go ahead and talk that way. You could still probably get to heaven, but I've been separated. Well, we hang out with this. Why can't you just go there and hang out there and do that? Because I've been separated. See, the idea is not, oh, I just want to do as much as I can and still get away with it. You may, and Bible says you may barely be saved, but God is looking for some people that would be separated to the work of the ministry. Come on, I believe this is coming back to the church. I believe God is raising up people that are going to preach a separated gospel. Our prayer should be, Lord, separate us unto the gospel of God. This was Paul, slave, number one, apostle, number two, 
separated. Those are the keys. If you want to be called, people say, I want to be a preacher, an evangelist, all this. Okay, well, separate yourself. This is what God would do. He called the apostles and then separated them unto himself. This is what happened whenever Judas was replaced and they cast lots. They found someone to get separated. This I, this consecrated life is the life God has called you to live. Do not let the devil lie to you. Romans 1, 2 through 4, which he, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Paul basically starts with a brief and complete understanding of who Jesus was on the human side. Paul says, and I'm getting the whole point of this whole series is to make it understandable, not to make it deeper than it already is, but to make you understand what it's saying. So on the human side, Jesus came for the line of David and was declared to be the son of God with power. So in this context, declared means to be determined or to be marked out. Jesus was determined to be the son of God. God validated him and God declared that this is my son. We saw that when Jesus was baptized, but this was the son of God and his divine nature was demonstrated in his resurrection from the dead. So that's why Paul is describing by the resurrection of the dead, because this was the demonstration of God's divine nature. Nobody but God can raise themselves up after death. It's one thing to die and then by the power of God, raise someone from the dead. It's another thing for Jesus to die on a cross and then raise himself up on the third day from the dead. Only God can do that. And that speaks to the divinity of Jesus. Jesus was and is the long awaited Messiah of Israel and the savior of humankind. And after years of ministering, Paul told the Philippians his reason for living. This was Paul's reason. This is in Philippians 121 to me to live is Christ. This is Paul's reason to live. And this is what he opens Romans with. It's all about Jesus. The essence of Paul's life was Christ. His motivation for doing what he did, his goals, the way he treated the people around him, everything that revolved around the Apostle Paul was the person of Jesus. This is what he opens Romans with. From the lineage of David, his life was completely wrapped up in the purpose of Christ. The one word description of Paul's life was Jesus. What a beautiful way to describe somebody's life. What a beautiful way to describe Jesus. That's how I want my life to be described as. What is the deal with this Isaiah guy? I don't know, but I know that he's all about Jesus. I know that his life is wrapped up in serving, being a slave to Jesus and serving God. So the promise God made to David in the Dave, um, the David's covenant was an unconditional promise that David would be in the bloodline of the Messiah and the Christ child was a descendant of Nathan, one of David's sons. So the unconditional promise was fulfilled when Jesus was born because he was in the lineage of David. A good example of an Old Testament prophecy of the gospel is found in Acts 8.30, where an uh, Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip, who, who's, the, who's the Bible referring to in Isaiah 53? So the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, the suffering savior, and he's wondering, who is this man? And then the Bible goes on to say, then Philip preached Jesus to him. And the eunuch immediately believes and is seeking and seeks baptism and is baptized. So the, the thing is this, Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise that there would come a Messiah out of the lineage of David and that Messiah would die for the sins of mankind. And then the eunuch would say, who's this man in Isaiah? And Philip would preach Jesus to him. That would be the 
fulfillment. One scholar said, Paul shows both the human and the divine, si divine side of the incarnation. He certainly believed in Christ's deity, but the fact of his being truly divine does not change the fact that Christ was also a true man and came down through the natural line of David. So yes, Jesus was divine. Now, some people believe, let me preface this really clear. Some people believe that Jesus gave up his divine nature when he became a man. I do not believe that. I believe, and I, I convinced the Bible teaches, Jesus was fully divine, that is fully God, and fully my fully man simultaneously so i don't ascribe to the teaching that jesus gave up his divinity and the way they defend that teaching is they say well jesus gave up his divine privileges which is true he gave up his divine privileges of being seated at the right hand of the father in heaven to come down leave eternity enter humanity wrap divinity in flesh and dwell among us born of a virgin that was his divine privilege that he gave up was being at the right hand of the father but jesus never gave up his divinity he was God on the earth. He's always been God since before time was created, and he will always be God. So do not do not get into that teaching that Jesus is not divine. He was only man, and he gave up his divinity. It's not biblical. Jesus gave up divine privileges, but did not give up his divine nature. Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is God. Romans 1, 5 through 6. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are are the called of Jesus Christ. So the church at Rome was a body of believers, both Jews and Gentiles, and Paul's mission was to all nations. Through him, we receive grace and apostleship and obedience to faith among all the nations for his name. So the book of Romans is for everyone, and the gospel is for everyone. This gospel is inclusive, not exclusive. It includes everybody. There's no more Jew nor Gentile. This is just for them or them. The gospel is for everybody, and God requires and calls all men everywhere to repent. So the gospel was Paul's introduction to grace. For Paul, there was nothing more important than the grasp, the understanding of the grace of God that this is for everybody. Romans is about something the Bible calls, and I'll try to keep this simple, the Bible calls the new covenant. Okay, so through Moses, God had made an agreement, a contract or a promise with the Jewish people. The contract also called the Mosaic law was the old covenant, the old law, the old way of doing things. Through Moses, God promised to bless his people if they obeyed him, but God promised to punish his people if they disobeyed him. That's the old covenant. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll punish you. Jesus comes and introduces what the Bible calls a new covenant. And the new covenant was predicted by the prophet Jeremiah, who said it would not be like the old covenant, okay? And God's people had not been able to keep the old covenant. It was impossible to keep the old covenant in all of its standard. And they suffered many sicknesses, troubles, diseases, and plagues because they weren't able to keep it and curses alike. With the new covenant, God said, this is not going to be a set of rules and regulations and a law that you have to abide by, but this is going to be a change within to make people truly righteous before God. So the old covenant rules, regulations couldn't keep it. We had a, a, a law to live by, which we're going to see in Romans that we couldn't live by. The new covenant, which thank you, Lord, that we're in alive during the new covenant. Just spend a moment to thank the Lord you're involved in the new covenant. The new covenant says it's no longer going to be an outside law, but a law written on your heart. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be regenerated. Your spirit and God's spirit are going to become one and you're going to be resurrected with Christ in Christ. You're going to go from spiritual death to spiritual life and God's going to change your desires and you're going to be able to live by grace the life that God has called you to live. Does any type one, if that excites you, if you're like, yes, this is good preaching, 
type one in the chat because this gets me excited this new covenant christianity that we're able to be involved in this book of romans is about the new covenant and the key words are righteousness and grace grace being unmerited favor something you can't earn and righteousness being right standing with god i like to say it's not right ish i'm not right ish with god like oh i'm kind of okay i'm righteous fully righteous before god and god has separated you called you and made you righteous romans 1 7 verses 7 chapter 1 verse 7 to all who are in rome beloved of god called to be saints grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ so as the epistle opens we're introduced to god's view of the believers in rome paul begins with a greeting which acknowledges that these people have a special place in god's heart paul's roman brothers and sisters were not called to be apostles but had been called to be saints a word that is commonly used for believers back then so you, you maybe aren't called to be an apostle a pastor an evangelist a teacher but you might be called to be a saint which we are called to be saints okay and the word apostle and saint both carry the idea of being set apart or being called to holiness when you become a believer you become a saint that is one who is called apart set apart and called to live a holy and consecrated life no longer are you living a life for yourself but you're called to holiness Romans 1 8 first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world so Paul clearly loves these people and he says I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all in other words Paul says I pray for you I thank God for you in prayer that's how we thank God for people so they this is how we see the passion Paul had towards these Roman believers that he'd never even been with but Paul is writing saying I thank God for you he doesn't say I thank God for you because of all the nice things you've done for me he says I thank God for you because your faith has been spoken of throughout the whole world and one scholar said this because it's an interesting statement that their faith was spoken about throughout the whole world one scholar says paul goes so far as to use exaggeration when he says throughout the whole world when we consider how much of the world was unknown to paul a contemporary equivalent to the statement might be i thank god for you because your faith is spreading all over the universe he was exaggerating of course much like a fisherman might get really excited about his catch and say the fish was the size of texas these are there are those who worry about this use of um, hyperbole feeling it discredits the integrity of the communicator for those who've been privileged to read broadly or even travel in other cultures they're aware that a common way to express oneself is to use exaggeration yes it can be misused but it is my conviction conviction it was simply paul's way of encouraging the believers in rome for they indeed had a worldwide reputation as a christian community so it wasn't a strict like the whole entire world knows about your faith but he's using an exaggeration to say your faith is so viral that's the best way i can say it that people all over the the regions that i've been traveling are speaking of your faith so it's an exaggeration paul used to commend them romans 1 9 through 10 for god is my witness okay so look what paul says here for god is my witness whom i serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son and without ceasing i have mention of you always in my prayers making request if by some means now at last i may find a a way in the will of god to come to you so for god as my witness paul says I make mention of you always in my prayers now this is the only place in scripture god paul uses the word god is my witness and the reason why he's saying it is because the the listeners or the readers of the letter might 
not believe Paul when Paul says, I'm constantly mentioning you in prayer, when Paul had never even met them. So why wouldn't the Romans have believed that Paul prayed fervently for them? Well, if an acquaintance wrote you a card or a letter or an email or a text or a message and said, I pray for you always. Imagine you barely know somebody. Imagine I texted you saying, I pray for you always. Every time I pray, I pray for you. You would assume, oh, Isaiah's just being nice, but I don't really literally expect him that he prays for me all the time. So, and, and you have to remember, most of the Roman Christians didn't even know Paul. So hearing him say that he prayed for them all the time would be odd to them. Now imagine if he said, I pray for you all the time, and I'm not just saying that, I really mean it. You'd be a little more convinced. So by Paul saying, God is my witness that I'm always praying for you, this is what Paul was saying. I'm praying for you all the time, literally, in a literal sense. I'm not just saying I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. That's why Paul said God is my witness. Paul didn't just say, oh, I'll pray for you. He actually prayed for them. We constantly say, oh, I'll pray for you, or oh, I'm praying for you, brother. But ask yourself this, how often is that a lie? How often do we actually pray for the person when we say we'll pray for them? I had to start, and I've been writing names down in my notepad, because I, in my phone, my notepad app, because I found myself saying, I'll pray for you, but they're never actually praying for the person. And God's like, uh, that's called lying. So I started writing down their names. Maybe you need tonight to start a prayer list so you remember certain people in your prayers. Paul then tells the Christians he's praying that God would open up the door to visit them and eventually Paul would visit them. As a former Pharisee, Paul would have have been used to a prayer ritual as a devout Jew. He may have spent several hours a day in prayer as many did in conjunction with the offerings they brought to the temple. So Paul did not have this weak prayer life. Paul was not like a lot of our pastors in the church today where they have a 15 minute prayer life. Paul prayed, could have been hours a day for sure when he was a Pharisee, and Paul was like, I'm really praying for you. I'm not just going to say, it. I believe there's a generation of Christians rising up that are really going to pray for the people they say they're going to pray for. Let us not be Christians in word, but Christians in deed and in action. Now, the interesting thing to know about prayer is prayer is learned just as speaking is learned. We learn a few words from our parents and then our parents go, oh, yay, we're so proud of you you know to say mommy or daddy and we get all excited then we're able to go from saying little words to building sentences and so it is with prayer remember the disciples told jesus teach us to pray it was something that you don't just automatically get you learn to pray one of the first things at the altar when god was speaking to me audibly and god said isaiah i want you to pray for an hour a day if you've listened to my testimony i've gone into detail on some of this god said i want you to pray an hour a day my response back to god at that altar january 12 2011 was i don't know how to pray Pray. God's response back to me was, I will teach you to pray. So remember, the Holy Spirit is the one that will come and teach us, and the Holy Spirit was the one that came and taught me how to pray. I did not learn prayer from a book or a video, which that's great if you do. I learned prayer through the person of the Holy Spirit. He came and taught me to pray. So tonight, if you don't know how to pray, Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you to pray. Say, Father, teach me. Give me the word so I know how to pray effectively. Prayer is not just repeating, God heal them, God heal them, God heal them, God save my marriage, God save my... Over and over. There's a level of persistence when you bring your appeal before God, but prayer is about communication, not just requests all the time. Prayer is our method of communication with God. Jesus, our high priest, the mediator, hears our prayers and delivers them to the Father. We pray because we have a Father who will consider our requests and answer them according to his divine will the holy spirit also empowers our prayer life ephesians 6 18 always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit 
So Jesus, our high priest forever, remember a high priest was someone who performed temple sacrifices and was the mediator between God and the people during the Old Testament. So the high priest would bring sacrifices to God on behalf of the people and bring requests to God on behalf of the people. When Christ died and rose again, he became the only mediator and our eternal high priest forever. Okay, so now the way that we get to the Father is through Jesus. In Jesus' name, that's our authority to the Father. Jesus is the only mediator. We don't pray to angels. We do not pray to Mary. We do not pray to saints. That is not biblical. The Bible never, ever, ever commands us to pray to a person, to Mary, or to any saint or any, you know, passed, passed away apostle or anything like that. The only person we are to pray to is God. Okay, so we pray in Jesus' name, and Jesus takes our request to the Father because Jesus is our mediator to the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. And the Holy Spirit empowers our prayer, gives us the power, gives us the energy, and gives us the right words. In fact, praying in the Spirit is beautiful. I like to say when you pray in the Spirit, when you pray in tongues, not speak out a message in tongues, but you pray in the Spirit or you pray in tongues, it's the Holy Spirit having a prayer meeting on the inside of you. That's what praying in tongues is. The Holy Spirit begins to pray out of you and he knows what to pray for the bible says when you know not what to pray which we'll talk about this probably tomorrow the holy spirit prays out of you words that can't be uttered or groaned and cannot be understood and it and the holy spirit prays a perfect prayer so if you're going through a trial and you don't know what to pray for you start praying in the spirit and the holy spirit prays out of you and it's a perfect prayer romans 1 11 through 13 for i long to see you that i might impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both you and, and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. So Paul says, I long to be with you. Paul is saying, what I want to bring you and do with you can't be done over the internet, can't be done over a letter. There's something about seeing someone face to face, praying for someone face to face. I love Zoom deliverance, but it will never be as powerful as in-person deliverance, okay? There's power when we come together and Paul was longing to be with them. But here's what's interesting. Paul said, I want to be with you. Here's why. Here's why I want to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift. So we don't know if Paul was going to lay hands and impart that or how Paul was going to impart that, but Paul wants to see them to impart spiritual gifts on them. This would probably be by the laying on of hands to stir up these gifts on them, but there is a biblical reality of impartation, specifically with a spiritual gift that Paul is describing. Paul says, I want to be with you in person, not through a letter, so that I can lay my hand on you and impart a spiritual gift to you. We don't know what that spiritual gift was, but we know there's something about being together, meeting each other, praying with each other, being in the house of God, that we can impart spiritual gifts. Freely we have been given, freely we give. I oftentimes lay hands on people, say, Lord, I pray that you would impart any spiritual gift you've given me unto them. I just believe that this is a biblical reality to impart through the laying on of hands. Romans 1, 14 through 15. Paul says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now, Paul explains his covenant responsibilities by saying this, I am a debtor. Or in another translation, it's I am obligated. A debtor is a person under an obligation. Now, why does Paul consider himself a debtor? Or why is Paul saying I'm in debt or I'm under an obligation? For the same reason that every Christian listening to this 
is a debtor. When we were saved, we were simultaneously called to be ambassadors for Christ as though God were making a plea through us. That's 2 Corinthians 5.20. So when you got saved, you are indebted to God. You are an ambassador of him, and God is now pleading through you, calling people back to himself. You've been now reconciled to God, and God is calling you to the ministry of reconciliation. We all have the debt of sharing the gospel to friends and family. So we have the debt of sin. We owe, this is good preaching tonight. Amen. Type one. We had the debt of sin. We get saved. God takes the debt of sin away. And now we have the debt of sharing the gospel. We're obligated to share the gospel. We're required to share because of what God has done for us. That's what we do now for God by spreading this message to friends and family. How else can we pay God back for all that he's done other than sharing what he's done? At the least we can do while at the same time, it being the most we can do is to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not only the least we can do for him, it's the most that we can do. And that is what we are in debt to. Paul's calling like ours is universal. He's obligated to Greeks and to non-Greeks, to wise and to foolish. And he was, as we are, called by God to lay aside all prejudices, all racism, all judgments, all slander, and he's boldly affirming that God is for all people everywhere, regardless of gender, race, or nationality. Doesn't matter if you're male, female, rich, poor, black, white, yellow, green, purple, pink, it doesn't matter. God's message is for everyone everywhere, regardless of gender, race, or nationality. The Greeks considered themselves wise and the world was foolish barbarians. The Jews looked upon the Gentiles as unclean and dangerous. So Paul says, I'm a debtor to both Jews and Greeks, and he thinks of himself as obligated to all people, which eventually would bring hostility to Paul from all different directions. You're indebted to all people. I want you to think about something you've maybe never thought about. When you're out in public, with you're with your friends, family, whoever you're around, your coworkers, let's just say your circle of influence. You're indebted to them. You owe them something. Here's what you owe them. Not only do you owe them something, you owe God this. You're indebted by the fact or you're obligated to share your faith with them. That's the debt is I have to share my faith with them. I have the good news. It would be as if somebody worked in a cancer ward, had the cure to cancer in their pocket and worked there for 45 years and never ever told anybody that I had the cure in my pocket the whole time to your disease, but instead just kept coexisting with those that had cancer. This is exactly what the American church does. We have the good news in our pocket and we walk around day in and day out with the good news of Jesus Christ and we don't share it with anybody. Now, the disease the world has is much worse than cancer. It's an eternal disease that leads to eternal destruction. So how much more should we be opening up our mouth and sharing our faith? As Paul said, I'm a debtor to this thing. We are indebted to sharing our faith. It's the least we can do and it's the most that we can do. So this is what Paul is saying. We need to have an eagerness to preach the gospel. When you give your life to the Lord, there's a cost. Jesus warned his disciples in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. So you wouldn't be hated. Yet because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. So Jesus says, listen, there's a price to pay. You're indebted to me and you're going to be hated by the world. If you were of the world, the world would love you. Think about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, if the world loves you, it's because you're of the world. That's why the world loves you. That's why no one at work, school, culture gets mad at you. You might have, you know, a lot of these Christian YouTubers, nobody gets mad at them. The world doesn't get mad at them because they're of the world. They teach a worldly gospel. But when you're speaking against the world, you're going to be hated because Jesus said, I've chosen you out of the world 
Therefore, the world hates you. That's why they hate you. It's because you're separated and chosen and you are called by God. And so don't be shocked when the world hates you. It's part of being in debt. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For many of us, we are ashamed of the gospel. We have, the shame, we have shame for the name of Christ. We hesitate to share our faith. We hesitate to pray for people. We hesitate to give our testimony. And for us, many of us, unknowingly, this is shame. But Paul says, I have no shame. Friend, if you're afraid to share the gospel, that's shame. You are ashamed of God. That's why you don't share. But he says, it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Salvation is not some normal, natural, repeated prayer. It's when God revives our spirit. When we become new creatures, there is power. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. There's a born again, like my shirt says, amen. There's a born again experience and it's the power of God unto salvation. It is a supernaturally powerful thing to be born again. It's a real experience that takes place and we've made it in the, in the church. Oh, just pray a prayer and you're fine. And that's not all what the Bible teaches. No, it's the power of God unto salvation. So the shame is breaking off of you tonight in Jesus name. Type this in the chat. No more shame for his name. No more. I will no longer be ashamed of the name of Jesus. Why is it we could sin and not feel shame, but we feel shame by sharing the name of Jesus? Come on, help me chat. We could go watch these demonic movies. We can go watch these sexual movies and we don't feel any shame, which by the way, shame is a good thing. You should feel shame when you sin, but all of a sudden to share our faith, we're ashamed of that. So we're not ashamed of sin, but we are ashamed of God. Lord, I pray tonight there'd be no more shame for your name. Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So here we're brought the predicament. Because of the fall, our relationship with God has been fatally damaged, and we got to be reconciled back to God. The gospel is God's way of extending his grace, love, and mercy, and his only way of restoring us. It's through that, rest, res, uh, it's through that restoration that we receive absolute righteousness from God. But because we don't deserve this, it's a wonderful gift. We did nothing to earn it. God offers it to fallen creation through the gift of faith. It's by the gift of faith, by faith, because of the grace that we are saved. But it's by faith. So God says, if you have faith, I will offer you this gift. So the way we receive the gift of God is by faith. Hence why Paul says from faith to faith, we gain eternal life and a relationship with our creator and it costs us nothing. To show the Christians in Rome that this is not some new doctrine, Paul quotes the passage from Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. So the unity of the Old Testament message and the New Testament are together because this is a, a word from the Old Testament. But Paul says we live by faith. That's, that's how we're justified. Romans 1, which we'll go into later, of course, as the book of Romans continues. And guys, I got to stop doing an hour per chapter, okay? Because we'll never get done with these books. So I'm going to have to start being a little more concise because I end up going like an hour in one chapter and we'll, we're just never going to get through if we do that. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Okay, let me explain to you what Paul is saying here. Very important. Paul goes back to what's been happening since creation, since humankind fell. He says, and he uses the word suppress to describe what people in their wickedness do with the truth. He says, people suppress the truth. How could you suppress the truth unless you know the truth? So what Paul is saying is this, 
every person has some knowledge of the truth okay some knowledge that god is real that we're not here by accident that this was not some big some big bang theory that we're created by god but what they do is they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness and the bible says that god has put built in a recognition of himself in us that's why paul says god has shown it to them God has shown himself to them, to every person, so that he'll go on to say that they are without excuse. So every person has some level of truth. They suppress the truth living with their unrighteous lifestyles. And through creation, I'm, I'm making it very simple here, God has made himself known to everybody. How do we recognize God? Through creation. Psalms 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament show his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night into night reveals knowledge. So the Bible says the earth utters speech. The earth, this is what the Bible is saying. The day is speaking. That's what Psalms 19 is. The earth is saying, God is real. God is alive. Creation shouts to us that God exists. And when we hear those shouts, we ignore them. But nonetheless, we still hear them. So when you see the sun, the trees, the stars, the moon, the galaxies, who is God that, who is man that God is mindful, uh, the biology, you see the way that trees work, the way the lungs work, the way animals are, whatever creation you look at, you know God is real. The heavens declare, the heavens speak, the earth shouts to us. It speaks to us according to Psalms 19. And it says, God is alive, God exists, and God is real. But because men love darkness more than light, according to John, we suppress that truth. But the Bible says because of that, there's no excuse because everybody knows that God is God is real. Only a fool says in his heart, there is no God. So Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the cross being the ultimate expression of the father's wrath, his own son bears man's sin on his body on the tree the innocent for the guilty, and God pours out his wrath onto his very own son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So a holy God by necessity must reject all that is unholy, and his wrath is a display of God rejecting that. This is straight doctrine. Anyone that ever says, Isaiah doesn't preach doctrine, they don't watch our stuff. This is the gospel message. God pours his wrath out on Jesus and gives us the righteousness, trades us, imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And this is what Paul is talking about here. But again, every single person knows there is a God because creation utters and speaks to us. Creation talks to us and says that God is alive and God exists. Romans 1, 21 through 25. Because, and this is what's going to talk us about futile fallen mankind. This is what Paul is describing. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful but became futile, futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made by the corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping, creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, Paul's point is this. The knowledge of God was received through creation, but they didn't act on it. They did not give God glory. They didn't thank God. This is mankind Paul's speaking of. Their minds were clouded and their hearts were darkened. This is all the people you see at the store, in public. Most of the world is this state right here, okay? Minds clouded, their hearts darkened. 
and they began worshiping idols instead of worshiping God. This is true historically, but also psychologically as well. People who reject God become futile in their thinking and their hearts become clouded and they begin to set other things in the place of God, whether that's work, school, relationships, idols, they put things in the place of God because their mind becomes futile and their hearts become clouded. God turns people over who reject him to their sinful desires and they reap the retribution of choosing to live a life of sin and sinful pleasure and God judges sin in part by allowing sin to run its course. Let me say that again. God judges sin in part by allowing that sin to run its course because sin gives birth to death. Yes, it is the resulting sense of darkness that often open our, opens our hearts to God's light. Therefore, we see that it's both grace and mercy in the judgment of God. So, I know it sounds deep, it's not. God will allow sin to run its course in our life. It will allow destruction to come. In that darkness, whether it's anxiety, depression, whatever led you to the cross, in that deep darkness, oftentimes we're led to the light of God. So God says, you don't want me, you wanna serve your idols, you wanna worship ungodly things. God turns them over, us over to that, and in that darkness, oftentimes we end up seeking the Lord. So this is what God's saying. You want darkness? You want to live unholy? You want to live unclean? Here you go. And God turns them over to the life that they chose, resulting in destruction. Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. So what Paul is saying here is men and women, that's natural. Women and men, that's natural. Man and man is not natural. Woman and women is not natural. Okay, biology tells us that. You don't need to say, Isaiah, you're a bigot. Just go study biology and biology will tell you humankind could not exist if man were with man and women were with women. The world would not go on if we all live that way. So the Bible says these people, God gave them to their vile passions and women or men exchanged women for men and men were with men and women were with women, leaving the natural use, okay? The natural use for a man is a woman to be together. Are you guys catching this? But God says, you're chasing their vile passions. God gave them over. So we come to the second, God gave them up statement. The first was in verse 24. This time, Paul says God gave them up a more... Uh, up to immor immorality, sexual immorality. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and then exchanged natural sexuality for unnatural sexuality. And this is what you're gonna find in a lot of people when they start getting into perversion and they start serving other gods is unnatural sexuality comes deep, dark, perverted desires. Now, instead of using the normal Greek words for men and women, he uses the Greek words for males and females. Ironically, humans are the only species that engage in homosexuality. Homosexuality does not exist in the animal kingdom. Okay, let me say that again. Homosexuality, I know we're probably gonna get flagged for this, but it is what it is, does not exist in the animal kingdom. It is a vile passion for humans, and God turns people over to that vile passion. It's important we understand that deprived behavior always begins with a lie. Satan is the father of lies. When we choose darkness over light, we exchange, God, we exchange God's truth for Satan's lie. While Adam and Eve were in paradise, in a sinless environment, they believed Satan's lie and became liars themselves. So when we deny God, reject God, this is the result. Now I want to show you what happens here in Romans 1, 28 through 32. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, okay, so they didn't want God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind or a reprobated mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. And then he's gonna list the things God turned them over to, a reprobate, a numb mind. Watch what he says. Sexual immorality, wickedness, 
covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindness, whispers, they're backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to their parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only the same, but also approve of those who practice them. This is Romans 1, 28 through 32. Notice it says that God gave them over to a debased or a reprobated mind. This is a numbness of the conscious where you no longer feel bad about your sin. You look at these people that are out there doing all the stuff I just listed. They don't feel bad or convicted about it. God has turned them over to a reprobate or a debased mind. He turns them over to those things and then lists the things he turns them over to. And they practice these things. And the Bible says those that practice these things are deserving of death not just physically but this is a spiritual type of death this is eternity separated from god in the lake of fire type of death also those who approve of these things um are guilty of this and those who practice them so if you practice these things that i just listed or you approve of them you're guilty as well people and this is what paul is trying to tell us here people in themselves are not righteous human righteousness does not exist these are things that happen when God turns us over to a debased mind. These things are not God's intention. Murder, strife, envy, homosexuality, um, deceit, evil mindedness, inventing evil, unforgiving, unloving, disobedient to parents, violent, proud, vile. All these things are bringing about spiritual death and they are a reprobate mind. You got to be careful because you never know when you cross that line of becoming a reprobate mind. And if that's you, you need to pray, Lord, wash me, cleanse me. I want to be washed by your word. Give me a new mind because I'm numb to what you're saying to me and what you're doing. That's Romans 1, 28 through 32. If you guys are asking, that's the reprobate mind God turning over. Okay, we are going in. We're 48 minutes in. We're going to go into chapter two and I want to cover a few verses here that are very important. I'm going to show you, in my opinion, tonight, the, in my opinion, one of probably the most scary verse in the Bible or the top three scariest verses in the entire Bible we're going to cover. So in chapter two, Paul addresses those who may be tempted to look down on others. More specifically, he's going to address those who after reading the first chapter description of humanity might quickly react with, that's awful. Those people are terrible. This is what Paul's going to respond with. So imagine you read chapter one and you say, oh, those people are terrible. That they, they, they do all these things. I would never do that. And then chapter two, Paul's going to contrast it with watch what happens here romans chapter 2 okay if you're following romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 2. therefore you are inexcusable so now he's talking to the the believers in rome not the world not fallen mankind therefore you are inexcusable oh man whoever you are who judge so he's talking to christians that judge for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things but we know that the judgment of God is according to the truth against those who practice such things. So I want you to notice what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the issue is this. You judge these people for doing the same things that you do. You say, oh, they're bad because they do this, but you gossip. You watch pornography. You live vile. You're unforgiving. You're unloving. You're uncaring. You're a hypocrite. And you have no excuse for judging them. Now, he's not saying don't judge them. He's saying, don't judge them while still living in sin yourself, okay? Paul's saying, if you have the ability to judge between what's right and wrong, you choose to do wrong, you have no excuse. Paul is saying, who are you to judge someone that has a speck on their shirt when yours is covered in dirt? 
Notice the similarities between what Paul said here and what Jesus said in in the gospel of Luke chapter six. This is Jesus now in Luke chapter six. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that's in your eye when you don't even see the plank in your own eye? Hypocrite! Exclamation point. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you'll clearly see to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. So I want you to notice what Jesus said. Jesus isn't saying don't judge people, okay? I know he's don't judge me, only God can judge me. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying righteously judge people. In other words, why are you judging people when you have a plank sticking out of your eye? Make sure that if you judge somebody, you're not doing what you're judging them of doing, okay? So Paul points out that judgmental people do not make judgments based on truth. If they did, they would see their own fault. So if you're really a good ju- someone at judging others, then why haven't you judged yourself? That's the question. Why are you so good at pointing out everybody else's sin, but you don't even see your own sin? God's judgments are based on truth. Therefore, he has the right to judge. They're not based on whether you're in relationship, whether you're a Christian, whether he loves you. The judgment of God is based on truth. So the issue is not judging people it's judging people by and doing the same things that they do romans 2 3 through 4 and do you and do you think this oh man you who judge those those practicing such things and doing the same that you'll escape the judgment of god paul's like you really think that you're going to judge everybody for doing what they're doing and escape the judgment of god and then he says or do you despise the riches of his goodness forbearance and long suffering not knowing that the goodness of god leads you to repentance those who have the habit to judge others have an additional habit of ignoring their own faults and paul says you really think you're going to get away with judgment by ignoring your own faults paul asked the question do you think you're going to escape god's judgment paul's implying as jesus did practice what you preach rather than ponder god's goodness forbearance and long-suffering keep in mind that god's goodness is only there to lead you to repentance man this is good book of romans is good tonight That's what it's there for. The kindness of God leads us to repentance, that God's not striking us dead and that we don't have to suffer the judgment of God. That's why God does not immediately punish people for sinning. He's holding back wrath so that people have an opportunity to repent. Have you ever wondered why, and Paul's addressing it here, have you ever wondered why you can sin and nothing happened to you immediately? Like, why doesn't God strike you dead like you deserve by sinning? Why is it you can live, pastors can live in adultery and pornography and drinking and all the stuff they do in secret and they go years and years and years and God still uses them and they're still powerful in God and they still say they love God and they still pray in tongues. Paul is saying this, that is the goodness, forbearance and long suffering. But keep in mind, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. So why is God not immediately judging our sin? Because God is giving us time to repent man that's good preaching the issue is some of us might die before we have the opportunity or we might die in our sins but god doesn't immediately punish us he holds back his wrath to give us an opportunity to repent so paul is saying that notice the judgment of god is based on truth don't think now please hear me really loud and clear and let this strike the fear of god in you don't think because you haven't faced the consequences of your sin that you won't someday delayed judgment it doesn't mean God isn't going to judge you. You will reap what you sow. There is delayed judgment coming for some of us, and that should make chills go down your back, and that should bring the fear of the Lord. If you're living in sin right now, do not think you're getting away with it. Paul is describing hypocrites, which is the title of the video. He's describing that we're hypocrites if we do this, okay? Now, this right here, scariest verse to me, 
maybe top three. I think probably number one is Paul saying, after all this preaching, I fear I myself might be disqualified. And then maybe another one. But this is the top three to me. Scariest verse in all the Bible. And I, I could probably guarantee your pastors never preach this. I'm just saying I'm making the statement, okay? Romans chapter two, verses five through six. Highlight this in your Bible. Are you guys ready? But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are storing up or treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and the and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render each one according to his deeds. This is scary. Paul is saying this, because of your hardness of heart, this is what you're doing. As a Christian, this is to Christians to you. Now, everyone watching this, okay? We're gonna take communion after so you can get saved, all right? But here's what he's saying. If you're sinning right now as a Christian, you're continuing to sin, you're actually storing up wrath right now. There is a, a savings account, a bank account, a bowl that's being filled with God's wrath. As you're sinning and living in sin, thinking God's not gonna catch me, you know, I could do it, I did it like Samson, I did it last time and nothing happened. As you're doing that, God's not judging you immediately, God is storing up and adding to that bank account. And here's what he's adding, wrath, okay? He's not, because remember he says, you're storing up treasures in heaven when you serve me and do good things. Now you're storing or treasuring up the wrath of God by doing sinful things. You're storing that up. And then one day that's going to be poured out in the day of wrath, the day of judgment, the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, this is not to unbelievers Paul's writing to. Remember, this is to believers. Scariest verse to me in the Bible. He's writing to believers, showing them that their sin's not being judged immediately, but they're storing up the wrath of God, and one day that wrath is going to be poured out. And when we continue in unrighteousness, we are storing this up for ourselves. When we judge others, we do the same thing. We store up wrath for ourselves. And this is a this verse is a massive stop sign saying, don't continue doing this or you'll wreck. But how many of you know stop signs and warnings are useless if you ignore them, but if you heed them, they can save your lives. So heed this warning tonight and repent before it's too late. Paul says, God will render each according to his deeds. We will be judged on what we do. So you're not going to get away because you say, oh, I'm... no, what did you do in this life? And you're going to be judged based on your deeds. And these are the Christians. This is not unbelievers he's talking to. He's talking to judgmental Christians that live in sin and store up the wrath of God. Matthew Henry, who's a very good Bible commentator, says this, the wrath of God is not like our wrath, a heat and passion, but it's the righteous judgment, his will to punish sin. This righteous judgment of God is now many times concealed in the prosperity of sinners, but shortly it'll be manifested before all of the world. Let me say that again. This righteous judgment of God is now at many times concealed in the prosperity of sinners, but shortly will be manifested before all of the world. So sinners get away with it. We think, oh, they're prosperous. They have a lot of money. They're healthy. They're this, but they're, it's just stored up. It's just storing up wrath. So this is something that we all should be aware of tonight, that we don't store up the wrath of God by living ungodly lives. Romans 2, 7 through 8. Eternal life to those who are patient and continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. So he says, if you're a believer, you get glory, honor, and immortality. If you're an unbeliever, or if you don't obey the truth, or if you obey unrighteousness, you get indignation or wrath. And Paul's not exaggerating. He's delivering a sobering description of the way things really are. And this hope is if we trust God, serve God, we gain eternal life. If we reject God and follow our own way, we experience the wrath of God and 
ultimately eternity in hell. So eternal life is a gift from God. It's a real thing. I don't have time to go into in depth in it, but that's what we get when we seek him. And when we don't seek him, we get wrath and indignation. Romans 2, 9 through 11. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to all, everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality in God. So Paul is saying this, if you do good, then you get glory, honor, and peace. If you do bad, there's no, there's, there's judgment for you, okay? Um, you don't get any of this. If you do evil, you get judgment, tribulation, and anguish. And, and the point is, there's no partiality. God doesn't say, okay, for the Jews, I'm going to give them this. For the Greeks, in other words, for the unbelievers, if they do good, they'll be saved still. And for the believers, if they don't do good, God says, no, there's no partiality. doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. If you do continue on sinning, doing these things, there's going to be judgment for you. It's not obeying the law. It's obeying Jesus, okay? Romans 2, 12 through 15. For as many... For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do these things in the law, although not having the law are a law to themselves, who show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So, sounds complicated, it's not. He says, whether you've sinned does not depend on whether you knew the law or not. Some Jews of his day thought because they had the privilege of knowing the law and they kept it par partially, they were righteous. Paul says, think again, merely hearing the law isn't enough. You must do the law and doing it partially, partially won't wash you either. You must do it perfectly because God is perfect. And of course, Paul knew it was impossible to do it for the Jews to keep the law perfectly. The Gentiles, okay, I'm going to break it down simply did not have the Mosaic law, but they did have what the Bible says, a conscience. Paul speaks of their conscience as accusing or else excusing. So that's Romans 2.15. So the Jews had the law, so they knew that they were sinning because they were breaking the law. The Gentiles had their conscience to tell them what was wrong. So in other words, when they did something wrong, they felt guilty, but they made excuses. Both of these feeling guilty and defending themselves are proof that they had violated their conscience. Of the Gentiles hadn't violated their conscience, they wouldn't have felt guilty. And if they hadn't violated their conscience, they wouldn't have had any need or an excuse. So Paul is pointing out that the people are condemned apart from God's law because they know they violated their own standards, much less God's standards. So it's like, hey, if you violate your own conscience, how much more have you violated God's law? And if you're a Jew and you violated God's law, you know that you, you deserve judgment. So every one of us as sinners because every one of us have failed to live up to the standard, our own standard, let alone God's standard. Even atheists and whatever other religion, they have a standard, right? They know it's wrong to do this, wrong to do that. That's their conscience. But we not only have that, but we have the spirit of God that convicts us and tells us what to do right or wrong. We have the word of God. And so Paul is basically saying this, whether you are a Jew that has the law or a Gentile that doesn't, you're both wrong because you're both violating God's standard. One violates their conscience. One violates the law of God. Nobody can be perfect and keep it perfect. And that's where the grace of God comes into effect, which we'll go into in another week. But let's just, let's end with this one here. And then we're going to take communion. And then we're going to pray. Romans 2, 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. So this verse is referring back to verses 12 and 13, where Paul explained how people are going to be judged that day of wrath. Paul's letting his readers know there's a day coming 
and it is coming and you'd better be ready because God is going to judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. There's going to be a day of judgment. So no one can run. No one can hide. This is going to be the secrets of men brought to the light. So whatever you're doing now, I pray there's a conviction on you. I pray there's a repentance on you. I pray that you understand that you're storing up terrible wrath by continuing in your secret sin, thinking God's not going to judge you because one day the secrets of men are going to be revealed and going to be brought to the light. Whether you knew the truth or you didn't. Remember Romans 1, God has made himself plain. Everybody knows God is real. Whether you have the standard of God or you're not, you have a conscience that God has put in you. God has shown himself to every person according to the word through creation. Remember, it shouts that God is real and we're responsible for repenting of our sins and not dying in God's wrath. That's stored up wrath. We need to repent of, okay? So this is a great place to take communion, to remind ourselves that all of this terrible wrath of God, storing up wrath, living in sin, can be washed away tonight by the blood of Jesus. Communion being, for those of you that are new, a symbolic way to show that we belong to Jesus and remembering what Jesus did. We know that we're forgetful people, that we oftentimes forget what we did yesterday, what we ate. And so this is a reminder and this is a way that we're able to go and to remind ourselves the work that Jesus did on the cross, the blood that was spilled on Calvary, his sacrificial death. And I need to do this more. We do this, I don't know, every few months. We need to do it more often. But the breaking and eating of bread has to do with Christ's body being broken on the cross. The drinking of the cup has to do with Christ's shedding of blood. Communion was originally celebrated by God's people as the promise of protection during Exodus 12, but then Jesus came and redefined the celebration of the Passover and got his disciples together and made a new promise. So whatever you have, I'm going to give you a second to grab it. If you have juice, water, um, I just have a little cracker here, maybe just a little cracker. Maybe you have a little piece of bread you can go grab. Whatever you have, go grab it so that we can take communion. I don't want anybody to miss this. I want everybody to do this together. I'm going to talk about examining ourselves before. I'm going to give you some communion verses, but this, after hearing what we heard tonight, fallen mankind being restored, which if you enjoyed tonight, type one, I think the book of Romans is incredible and I hope I'm doing it justice and teaching it where you can understand it and making it simple for you. Um, I'm very excited for this journey going through Romans. We'll continue to trade off other teachings as well, but I want to make sure everybody gets to communion. So get it. If your kids want to do it, that's great. We're going to take it. Okay. Get your stuff. I have it here together. Um, go ahead and be right back. Uh, truth seeker some of you in the chat go grab your stuff once you have your stuff type two in the chat all right once you have your your uh your juice or your water or whatever it is you're using remember it's symbolic so it doesn't really matter your cracker your bread it's symbolic as i'm dropping my stuff on the ground go ahead and get it and then type two in the chat once you're ready to go okay let me read you some of these verses luke 22 19 he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So this was communion according to Jesus, Luke twenty-two nineteen. Now I want to make sure we do something by, and we want to examine ourselves before we take communion. And this is found in 1 Corinthians. Let me make sure I have it right here. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. So, this is very basic. We need to examine ourselves, make sure we're doing it for the right reason. Back then, he was writing to people that were overeating. They were drinking a lot of wine, a lot of food, and they were basically 
overeating and calling it the Lord's Supper. So Paul was saying, you're doing it in an unworthy manner. You need to acknowledge the body of the Lord. This is a holy moment, and we want to acknowledge what Jesus did on the cross. So don't sit here and say, oh, there's sin in my life. I can't do this. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, examine that you have right motives, that you're doing this for the right reason, and that you're not, uh, you know, corrupting this and using this in corrupted ways like they were back then. But don't be scared to take communion. Just remember... We need to examine ourselves. So let ex- let's examine ourselves. Let's repent and let's ask the Lord for forgiveness. Father, we come before you right now in the mighty name of Jesus. And Father, we repent of all of our sin. God, we turn away from our own sin, our own righteousness that is filthy rags. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us, you'd cleanse us, and you would wash us of our sins. We examine ourselves tonight, God, if there's any sin in our life that is not of, that is uh, offending towards you. As David said, Lord, point out the sin in our life, the areas that offend you. If there's anything in our life that is offensive towards you, Father, we ask you tonight, in Jesus' name, for you to point it out to examine us, to wash us, God, from this wrath of that we're storing up. Forgive us of those sins, God. Cleanse us of those sins, God. We want to write, we want to walk circumspect. We want to walk righteous before you, Lord. And we're asking you in Jesus' mighty name to cleanse us by, by your blood. Father, we thank you for what you did on the cross. We acknowledge the finished work of the cross. It is by grace through faith that we are saved. And Father, we thank you for the blood that was shed. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on that cross for us, for shedding that blood that your body was broken. And Lord, tonight we do this in remembrance of you. We do this for you. And we thank you, God, for what you're doing. All right, amen. Okay, so what we're gonna do now is have your bread ready. I have my cracker here, and I'm going to read this, and then I'll, let, I'll tell you guys when to, to take your bread. Uh, yes, you can do this if you have not been baptized. Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 11.23 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, so that's what we have here, and, he had, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So go ahead and eat your bread. We're going to do this in the remembrance of the breaking of Jesus' body. So go ahead and take that. We just thank you, Lord, that your body was broken for us. Okay, so now you guys can go ahead and eat your cracker, your bread. Now I'm going to read you guys 1 Corinthians 11.25. In the same way, he took the cup, which I have here, my cup. Take whatever cup you have. He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is my new covenant in my blood, which we talked about tonight. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's take this now as a representation of the blood of Jesus in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Go ahead and, and drink um, drink that now. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood, God. We honor you. Thank you. Now let me uh, finish with this, and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives. God, we thank you that tonight you're convicting us. We thank you that this word, God, that went out tonight, that it will not fall on the footpath and the devil will not come and steal it, as your word says in Luke 8. We thank you, Lord, that it will not fall on the rocky ground and not bear fruit. We thank you, Lord, that it would not fall on the thistles. But I pray tonight, God, that this word would fall on the good soil of our hearts and that, God, we would remember you, we would honor you, we would serve you. Let us not be hypocrites. If you're a hypocrite, just repent right now. Father, we repent of being hypocrites 
hypocrites, Lord. Forgive us, God. We want to serve you for real. We want to know you for real. We want to be slaves of you. God, do what only you can do. Wash us in your precious blood. Cleanse us in your precious blood. Renew us in the precious blood of Jesus. God, right now, for those that need deliverance, I pray that you would deliver them. For those that need healing, I pray that you would heal their physical bodies right now. Father, do what only you can do. In Jesus' mighty name, God, do what only you can do. Let this word fall in the good soil of our heart, God. Let us be hunger, hungry for more of your word, more of your spirit, more of your power, more of your grace. Let us produce good fruit that remains, God, and prune the dead branches that don't produce good fruit, Lord. I pray, God, that as we do this communion, we would just remember you, we'd honor you, and we would leave this broadcast with a new hunger, a new passion, and a new fire for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Awesome, awesome, guys. If you want to sow into the broadcast, you can. The links to give are there. We also have links in the comments. We are crowdfunded, guys. We could not do this without your guys' support. As I said, we had an awesome weekend in Texas. I got home at like 1.30 a.m. It was a long trip, and I've been all day long studying, preparing. I slept in today, and I've been preparing all day long for this message. And so I honor you, those that are here. I'm not getting off yet. If you're still here, pray about sewing. As we say always, don't dine and dash. We put a lot of energy, time, and effort into these live streams, into our ministry, into uploading. We took a break last week, which I much needed, and I'm going to be doing that more often, you know, for two and a half years I've been uploading every single day or I'm sorry for a year and a half I've been uploading every single day we have over 700 videos on the channel and it's extremely tiring it's extremely draining and I always think like I got to upload every day I got to do this or this you know we're going to lose this numbers or people and God's been showing me recently like Isaiah you need to rest it's either I just keep going at it and never take any breaks which I've literally taken my first week off in the whole year or I take more breaks, more time off, and I'm healthier, I rest more, and I'm able to do this for the long haul. I wanna do this until Jesus comes back. Like really, I, I have no plan of stopping to preach and preaching anytime soon. I'm gonna be doing this for the rest of my life, and so I want, I'm in this for the long haul. So I think it's important that I take these times with my family away, vacation where I'm not uploading, I'm not recording, I'm not thinking about it, I'm not going on social media. So I've spent like really hardly any time this last week on social media. I don't scroll on social media, I don't scroll on TikTok, I don't scroll on Facebook. I literally, my brother uploads my content and I want to make sure that I'm locked in with God, locked in with my family. I don't want to get out of the place of prayer. I don't ever want to get out of the place of holiness. I want to make sure that I stay consecrated so that I can bring you guys these messages. Without the anointing of God, I will not go on these broadcasts. Listen, if God's hand lifts off me, if the anointing lifts off me, I will not keep going on dry. I am only going to do this if I have oil in my lamp. And so I got to make sure that I stay doing that. So for those of you that, you know, are with us still, I appreciate it. I know people are finicky, but hey, just know that I'm going to work on taking more breaks, more rest, more time. And so you guys enable us to do that with your your finances because we couldn't do this without you guys. I'm not on a regular schedule. I'm not on a salary. I've never been on a salary at a church or anything. I've always lived by faith and God's always supported us. And even when we travel and preach, we don't charge. People bless us sometimes. Majority of the time I travel and preach, I give the money right back to the church. And so I appreciate you guys' support. If you can give, give tonight. If you're not a monthly partner, pray about becoming one. The links to do that are in the comments. I'm asking you guys humbly, okay? You don't have to give. Maybe you're one of those that's like, oh, I don't want to give. I don't like when preachers ask for money. Then guess what? don't give stay here don't give get all the content free really i'm saying that truthfully you don't have to give if you don't have the finances if you can't afford it don't feel obligated um please just don't feel obligated those of you that can afford it you have the money to do it then biblically it's a biblical thing to sow into ministry so do that if you can if you can't stay with us 
get the content for free, get a tripped and um, trained up, and there's no harm, no foul, okay? So don't feel obligated. Again, this is for those that can give. We appreciate your guys' continued support. And those of you that give every week and that have been giving for over two years, I see you, okay? Davis family, um, Warren and Donna, Jeremy Split, Rallis, Oksana, Raid, uh, Aubrey. I see you guys giving all the time, okay? I appreciate you guys. It doesn't go unnoticed. We really do appreciate you guys. So what we're going to do now is we're going to let people give, and then we're going to read the donations on PayPal, the ones that are in the comments, and then we'll read the Venmo. And then the website, the Zelle, I'll see all that later, but just on stream, we're going to read. I don't have Cash App Alexis, unfortunately. Um, our account was frozen, and they will not unfreeze it, and we don't know why. It's a, it's a common thing to happen, but it's just annoying. It is what it is. But yeah, if you're not a monthly partner, pray about becoming one. You'll get the 70 sermons, 25% off, all that kind of stuff. And then... Um, also, if you if you like to support the ministry, you can. The links to give are there. Honestly, guys, all the links you need are on the website, and all the links you need are on screen. Uh, we're also working on getting verified. Hopefully, very soon, we'll be verified on Instagram. We're working with the company. We're also going to get verified on Facebook. It's a very hard process to become verified. That's the blue check mark, but we need to do it because a lot of people are getting scammed, and they're sending money to people that are just not me. I don't have an orphanage. I don't have a WhatsApp, so please don't send money to WhatsApp. I'll never message you asking for money. Okay, if ever it came to be, which it probably will never be, but in two years, I've never done it. But if I was going to email you asking for donations, I would warn you before. Okay, I would never email you saying, I need your money. I'll never message you on Instagram ever, ever. I will never message you on Instagram asking for money. So please don't be scammed. There's a lot of scammers out there. There's a lot of scam pages. There's about 10 fake accounts of me on Instagram. Don't fall for them. I only have one Instagram account right now. We have uh 84,000 84.7,000 followers so if you don't have that it's not me okay we're working on getting the blue check mark all right let's read these donations again thank you to everyone giving sewing i hope you guys enjoyed the book of romans we will be doing this plus other teachings mixed in for the next i don't know month or two so i hope you guys are enjoying that i hope you guys enjoy the verse by verse i know i know by the numbers that the verse by verse are not as popular as the other teachings, but it doesn't matter. We don't, we're not here for popularity. We're not here for, you know, how many viewers and numbers we can get. We're here to serve God and be obedient to God. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.